0: Good morning. My name is Judge Scholin. To my right is Judge Greenberg. To my left is Judge Toth. We're here today to hear the case of Sean A. Raven versus David J. Shulkin, MD, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, docket number 162057. Would counsel for each party please note your appearance for the record?
1: James
2: Drysdale for the Secretary of Veterans Affairs would make Richard Daly, Deputy
0: Chief Counsel for the Department. Thank you. And um, would Amiki please note your appearance for the record?
3: Uh, Doug Rosinski for Veterans Justice Group. Thomas Andrews for the National Organization of
0: Veterans Advocates. Thank you. Does Appellance Council wish to reserve any time for rebuttal? Thank you. This will be done. Uh, once appellant's counsel has finished the initial presentation, the amici will be given 10 minutes apiece to present, and will go in the order they submitted their amicus brief. Veterans Justice Group first, and then NOVA. Once the amici have presented, the secretary will have 50 minutes to present his argument—the normal 30 plus an extra 20 to match the time requested by the amici. Upon completion of the secretary's argument, the appellant may proceed with his rebuttal. Appellant's counsel, you may begin when ready.
1: Thank you, Honor. May it please the court, Kenneth Carpenter, appearing on behalf of Mr. Raven. Before I begin, on behalf of Mr. Raven, I would like to uh, extend his apologies to the court for his not being able to be here. He and his wife were fortunate enough the early part of this year to adopt a child. Uh, the child was from New Jersey, uh, and uh, they uh, went to New Jersey, took care of the legal proceedings, and now the young man is back uh, with the parent, uh, new parents, and uh, they're both very excited.
0: Please extend so. the court's congratulations.
1: Thank you very much, Your Honor. To clarify, Your Honors, uh, the remedy sought by Mr. Raven in this case is a legal determination whether or not the, each offset rule that was established by this court in its in decision in Carpenter remains viable. Further, uh, the remedy sought is that this court ordered the Secretary to return to Mr. Raven the monies that were improperly withheld from his attorney fees, which were exclusively payable under the provisions of 38 USC Section 5904 D. This court's in decision in Carpenter is no longer viable because this court does not have a statutory does not have the statutory authority under Title 38 of the United States Code to award attorney fees for work performed before this Court. This Court's decision in Carpenter was premised upon this Court having actual authority under 5904 to award attorney fees for work performed before this Court. The only statutory authority that this Court has to award attorney fees for work performed before this Court is under Title 28 of the United States Code, the Equal Access to Justice Act, or EJA. The each offset requirement, which is uh, found within the legislation which created uh, the Equal Access to Justice Act, uh, only pertains when the same court awards attorney fees for exactly the same work performed before the same court. That does not take place in proceedings before this court. The proceedings before the agency under 38 U.S.C. section 5904. Are compensable uh, based upon a clarification in the statute, an amendment that was made by Congress in 2006. That amendment clarifies uh, any ambiguity which existed at the time of the Carpenter decision as to whether or not this court does or does not have the authority to award fees under
0: 5904. So the premise of your argument is that we that Carpenter was premised on the idea that we could award both fees from the court. But the facts of Carpenter relate to past due benefits withheld at the agency and EJA fees here at the court. So irrespective of what the underpinning may or may not have been, the application of it is the same as the context here. So it's it's clear to me the court thought it was working in Fees at the department and fees at the court, not fees at the court and fees at the court.
1: That's correct. But the uh, Inbomb decision relied upon the offset requirement to be applicable in those circumstances. And in those circumstances, both in the circumstances in Carpenter and the circumstances in this case, the EJA offset is not applicable. The EJA offset is only applicable when the same court awards attorney fees for the exact same work, the identical work performed before a court.
0: But in Carpenter, that wasn't the case. So if they were not prohi- if they were prohibiting the same behavior here, not an award of fees under 5904 from this court and an EJA fee from this court, I don't understand how there's a distinction now.
1: They did so upon reliance of the EJA offset requirement. That there was a requirement under the uh, Federal Administration
0: Federal Courts, federal courts
1: Administration Act uh, that indicated that the same work was required to be offset.
0: Right, but under your premise this it's the same either the same work that they were contemplating or the same not same work that they were <laughs> contemplating at the time. It's It's still work here, work there Two different sets of fees, not two fees awarded by this court.
1: As a matter of law, subject to offset. The only way they can be subject to offset is if the court had made the award of those fees before the agency.
0: So are you arguing Carpenter was wrongly decided then?
1: I certainly believe Carpenter was wrongly decided then, but I do not believe that this court is required to reach that question because of the change in law. The change in law clarifies, removes any ambiguity about whether or not this court does or does not have authority to award fees. What I suggest suggesting, Judge Schrodinger is, is that implicit in the decision in Carpenter was the assumption on the part of the inbound court that they had authority using Gardner to resolve the ambiguity that existed in 5904 in favor of a same work analysis. But a same work analysis is limited in scope by the nature of the Aegis statute. And that concept has been explained uh, uh, quite clearly between uh, a court in a court proceeding in Social Security in which Social Security has the specific statutory authority to award fees for work performed before the court. And in the two cases that Mr. Raven relies upon from the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit clarifies that it is only the offset for the work performed before the court that is covered by the eGA offset rule it is not applicable to work later performed before the agency. And that is precisely the circumstance that took place in both Carpenter and in Raven. And without that legal underpinning to support the same work EJA offset analysis, the viability of the decision in Carpenter no longer exists. And it no longer exists because Congress made a statutory change. They amended the language of 5904. The language of 5904 previously was ambiguous and did not clearly identify whether or not this court was covered under 5904 in terms of the award of attorney fees. Well, if I may, yes, sir. Uh, if, if we accept your
4: proposition, what effect will this have on the veteran involved
1: here? It, should have, it, it right? should have no effect on the uh, veteran because the money that was uh, withheld for the eGa offset by the agency came out of his award of past due benefits, which had been assigned to Mr. Raven. Did, words, did the veteran get what? notice of this proceeding from you? The court proceeding? Yes, sir. Yes, he did. So he knows... Well, do you know whether he knows,
4: that is, the veteran knows what you're arguing and what the result, if you prevail, will be, based upon what you've told him? I'm not asking you
1: to draw an inference, but what, what have you told him? I have had no communication with him, as I understand it from Mr. Raven, he has had no communication with him other than giving him notice of the filing of this appeal. And the substance of the notice.
4: In other words, what you're seeking... The net result of this if we adopt your position is $5700 will not go to the veteran. That $5700 did not go to the veteran. Well, will not ultimately go or I'll we'll have to disgorge it or whatever.
1: Well, well just It's a know. net loss to the veteran of $5700. Is that correct? No, it is not, your honor. Because it was taken out of the 20% that was supposed to go to Mr. Raven's attorney fees, and that money was retained by the government. All right. Well, then, is the lawyer being compensated twice for the same work if we adopt your position? No, he is not, because the work that Mr. Raven did before this court under a pro bono representation agreement was compensated for by this court under the Equal Access to Justice Act. That work is separate and distinct from the work that he did on remand that ultimately resulted in an award of past due benefits. And under the contract that he had under 5904D, he was entitled to the full 20% of the past due benefits that were awarded. What the government did in this case was to take that 20% and offset that 20% by the amount of the EGRA fees. What they did with that uh, uh, offset, uh, I have no knowledge. So you're saying that was legally wrong for the government to have done
4: that? It s- most certainly was, Your Honor. They had it's inconsistent it. with the, uh,
1: either the act or the intent of Congress? It is both inconsistent with the act because the act is limited to uh, each offsets in the exclusive circumstance in which the same court awards fees for the identical work. In other words, in a Social Security appeal, when the uh, Social Security claimant makes the appeal, he is entitled to reimbursement for fees under a specific statute, 42 U.S.C. uh, 406 B. And he is also entitled to submit an application under Title 28. So those dueling applications are for the exact same work. And if one is higher uh, and the other is lower, the attorney gets to keep the higher of those two fees, but the award is based upon the exact same work. In this court, there is no comparable proceeding that is available under any statute that allows this court to award a separate grant of fees for the work performed before this court. And I would further note that under uh, uh, the Social Security proceeding, under Title 42, All that is required for the award of attorney fees is to prevail. There is no substantial justification requirement. So it is a lesser standard to recover fees for simply prevailing in the work before the court without having to establish substantial justification, meaning that you could win under 406B and lose under EJA because you cannot establish a lack of substantial justification. Can I clarify
0: something that I think I heard you tell Judge Greenberg? So the veteran, 20% of the veteran's award would have been something like $23,000 or something.
3: That's
0: correct. Mr. Raven was paid 17 and change. So this $5,700 difference that the department says Mr. Raven has to offset. Correct. Is the department holding that, or did they pay that money to... Mr.
1: Easterling. 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 I, I, I do not know, Your Honor. I suspect that they returned it to him, but I, uh, Mr. Raven was given no notice of that, so okay. I, I don't know for sure what happened. I, I would assume they would do it, except as opposed to just keeping it themselves, but honestly, well, I do Well, but that,
4: that's the whole point. Somebody, if that's true, I guess we'll ask the government when they argue, but if they've already paid Mr. Easterling. He's going to have to pay it back if we adopt your position. Oh, no, he is not. Well, well, who's
1: going to to pay Mr. Raven? The government. Again? Again, because it was their negligence. This overpayment was made as a result of the VA acting ultra-virus, acting in excess of their authority. They have no authority to make an offset. They made an offset and then... If they attempt to recover this money from Mr Easterling, they're saying that they paid Mr. Easterling improperly. We have the power.
0: There's a Inray to, Wick or In Smith or one of those early fee cases that address this very issue and I don't recall.
4: Well you you excuse me. Yeah did you are you arguing that we have the power
1: to order the government to pay twice? No. For a mistake? No. But eventually you will, because if they attempt to do that to Mr. Easterling, then Mr. Easterling will proceed with an appeal of their attempt to recover that money by unlawfully creating an overpayment. By law, they cannot create an overpayment for an act of negligence on their part. They cannot claim an an erroneous award of benefits was made because that was not an erroneous award of benefits, except by their negligence. Well, let me ask you this. Your client is Mr. Raven. Is Mr. Raven. Would Mr.
4: Raven be satisfied if we uh, ordered uh, the uh, veteran to pay the $5,700?
1: No, because Mr. Uh, Would
4: he say if the court has a choice between ordering the government to pay twice Assuming your argument about negligence is correct and we have that authority, uh, which would he choose, his client having to disgorge $5,700 or too bad for me, the lawyer? I worked for it. I deserved it. The government made a mistake, but I'm not going to take it from
1: my client. Mr. Raven has advised me that if the circumstance were to arise in which Mr. uh, Easterling would be found liable for that money, he would not take the money from the government. Or he would take the money from the government and repay it to the government to avoid Mr. Easterling having an overpayment. But what I have told Mr. Raven is, is that he should put that money in his trust account and allow Mr. Easterling to separately litigate that. Let us be clear here, Your Honor, that issue is not before the court. What is before the court is the lawfulness of the action of the VA by continuing to follow a regular. Really we understand that, but what
4: I'm concerned about is the remedy. And I think you've answered the question, and it sounds like a fair answer. If we were to order the uh, government to uh, consider the $5,700 that it had paid to Mr. Easterling properly paid to Mr. Raven, Mr. Raven would not accept it.
2: That's correct.
1: The premise of this appeal is based upon the fact that the Carpenter decision is no longer legally viable. It is no longer legally viable for two reasons. Reason one is the change in law. Reason two is the clarifying decisions from the Fifth Circuit that make it clear that what is being represented before you today is the correct interpretation of the EJA offset statute, which is that the EJA offset only takes place when the same court orders the payment of attorney fees to the same attorney for the same work. That did not take place in Carpenter. That did not take place in this case. This court cannot continue to allow an EJA offset requirement to continue when it is clearly contrary to the EJA statute. The EGIS statute was only intended to require offset when the same attorney received a award from the same court for the same work. That's not what happened in Carpenter. That's not what has happened here. We get it. Unless there are further questions from the court, I will reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal.
0: Thank you. Mr. Rosinski.
5: May I please the court? The Veterans Justice Group agrees with Mr. Raven's position here, and I won't belabor the point,
4: but... Which position? The position... The one enunciated by counsel that if he gets the award, he'll give it back? No, the the overriding position,
5: the issue before the court, that uh, 5904 and EJA are mutually exclusive. And I try to simplify that, trying to think about it here. If work paid under EJA, is blue work and work paid under 5904 is red work and any overlapping work is purple work. There is no purple work. As a matter of law, there cannot be any purple work after the 2006 clarification because Egypt only pays for work before a court. It's repeated. Every section of Egypt says before a court. 5904 revised says before the department exclusive. There is no purple work. There is purple work in the Social Security system because 406A allows the the agency to pay for work before the agency and 406B allows the agency to pay for work before the court. Now, both of those come out of the Social Security applicant. But if you take EJA, it also allows to pay the same work as 406B. If I wrote a brief to the district court, which I did this year, I could file EJA and or I could file 406B. So security law says you only get one of them and you get the higher of the two. But EJA also has the higher standard. So sometimes you get less even though you do the same work because of the standard. You get nothing because of the EJA requirement to be not substantially justified
0: so I'm going to ask you what I asked uh, mr. carpenter which is this court in carpenter it's not confusing at all um, uh, seemed to think all the work was purple work here at the court work below um, so in even assuming the language of the regulation I mean the statute changed. Did the way the court applied it in Carpenter, was it at odds with the current language? Because it was talking about work before the department, and it was talking about work before this court, and it said it's all the same work.
5: Yes, Your Honor. And the interesting part of that is that we don't know how they got from here to there other than they said Gardner requires the ambiguity to be found in favor of the veteran and declared everything purple work as best for the veteran. I'm here to submit that has been proven incorrect for a number of reasons. And our NOVA friends will highlight some of the impact, but I can tell you from personal that has caused many, many clients to have to be dismissed or discharged or I take clients from others because it forces you to work for free.
0: Even if we agree and acknowledge that impact, that seems to be not grounds upon which this panel of three could overturn an en banc decision.
5: Well, first of all, I don't believe you need to overturn it. The statute has changed. I don't think there's any argument that it's still ambiguous. So the Gardner analysis, which is the linchpin? You take the Gardner analysis out of there, you don't get the same work. And that is how you've also avoided... The key point here is that same work not only requires overlapping purple work, that purple work has to be identified. The Carpenter Court, creatively, shall we say, said everything's purple work because that's most friendly for the vet, therefore it is. And therefore it has been. A, it is not best for the veteran overall, or veterans overall, individual cases aside. And secondly, If we're going to say the same work now, at least the Gardner analysis can no longer apply unless this court is going to say that the current version, of 5904, that explicitly states before the department is still ambiguous, and I submit that is not a reasonable argument. If it's not a reasonable argument, you have two, you have blue, and you have red. Indeed, apologies to Mr. Carpenter, but the closer the pink work would be arguing before this court and taking the same case of the federal circuit. Yet no one argues that is the same work. But you're filing briefs, you're filing the same issues usually, and you're filing, you're arguing in front of the court, you're preparing for argument. We don't do any of that before the agency. I can't submit a Form 9 to you, and I can't submit a brief, how much ever I would like to, to the board.
0: What if this court reversed a rating increase denial of a board decision? and sends it back for the board to implement. You don't have to do a thing.
5: Oh, I I beg to differ. First of all, I believe as a practical matter, you have maintained ethical requirements. You have to track that case. You have to interact with the veteran. And if you're a good lawyer, you are following the board. You're sending letters every six months or however your your schedule is to track that and find out what's going on because you would be derelict in your duty to send it into the VA. That's a misconception of what good lawyers do below. I, my day is full of just keeping up with the VA or trying to prod the VA. Not to, Again, the ethical overhead, the administration, you're responsible for that case for maybe another five years. If I came up here and one of my clients complained that I hadn't called them in five years, I don't think I'd want to be in that position. You don't have the work. It's not the same work. I, I, I challenge. I Look, I do not know of a single decision where this court has ordered EJA paid for anything outside court work. Indeed, it's a struggle to get full, your full EJA payment on any case. I also do not know of any case where the, the Secretary has paid 5904 funds for work before the court to any veteran, and I challenge the, them to identify that, because you can't. Even under the quote-unquote ambiguous 5904, that never occurred as far as I've been able to discern. Well, let me you this. Uh,
4: On the remedy issue, they may assume, for argument's sake, that the government made a mistake in paying the money over to the veteran. What's your position on who should suffer? The government by having to pay twice, the veteran by having to pay it over to the lawyer, or the lawyer who's just going to have to, or we heard a representation that the lawyer would refuse to take it. But if you're correct, lawyers should be paid for work that they do
5: organization is a, a slightly different view. The veteran agreed to 20 percent in this case, which is the de facto reasonable amount. Could be 30 percent. You could charge 40 percent. Some have. They agreed. That's a contract. That's a freely entered into agreement. Each of funds were never, hopefully, never anticipated. You anticipate them, but you don't want them because that means not only have you been wrongly denied below, wrongly denied by the board, you've also been wrongly Challenged on your appeal by the secretary, three errors by the secretary to get the EJA funds. Those EJA funds are earned to turn the ship around, had nothing to do
4: with getting well, it done. I earned. understand that part, but now we have a situation. We decide cases. I believe the, the remedy here is that
5: because of the error of withholding the money, not just saying, "Here's your EJA funds," you have a duty to to offset yourself, which is what we all do generally. That error, withholding the funds, means that the VA owes both people funds. And I, I didn't bring the case, but I believe it's Cox, where they pay 100% to the veteran. Long ago, the court say don't. They got a separate duty to pay the attorney, and then they can go attempt to get the money back from the veteran if they decide. In my experience, which has happened several times, they don't go after the money because they admit they made an error and, and not paying it. I think the same thing is here. You're not penalizing a veteran even if you took the money back because that's what they agreed to. And if they're getting 5904 money, you've won their case.
4: Well, we'll, we'll ask the government when they argue, but do, in uh, terms of your experience, this money is sitting somewhere it hasn't been paid over to the veteran? I don't know.
5: I've never had BA actually take money, and I've always got the money and been told, you know, I know the offset. I usually pay it within 30 days. I've not had to do that many times because, as a businessman, I've made the arrangements to not have to offset. But I want to make sure one closing point here. This is only one of the burdens that continue to be piled on and creatively put on to veterans' attorneys. A typical case, you have multiple remands, sometimes multiple from this court, petitions, you go back, you spend five or six years with very sick and usually elderly people. You know them. You know their wife. You usually know their children. You go back. They take an EJA offset out of it. You finally get the award. They take the EJA offset out of it, or you have to. They, they take
0: other. I'm sorry. Your time is up.
5: Thank
3: you. Thank you. May it please the court. I don't want to rehash the arguments on 509, 5904 unless you have any questions, or even same work unless you have questions. I think we can probably be more beneficial in talking about um, what I call our numbered argument and the impact on the veteran. Again, if you want to talk about 5904, have questions about that, or same work, I'm pleased to talk with you about that. I'm at the court's leisure. But I think in our brief, we really tried to lay out the fact that whenever you have a remand involving an attorney, there's usually EJA fees. We did some averages from 2016, and we gave you those numbers in our brief. And really, the point that we're trying to make is that typically those EJ fees are either going to um, absolutely swallow up any 20% fee or go a long way toward reducing them. So in fact, what we've created, or what has happened in Carpenter um, as a result of the Carpenter case, is we're incentivizing attorneys to not (coughs) represent people below. On remand, we are turning them away. We're giving them to someone else. And um, we think that has a negative impact on veterans in a couple ways. First, we're really taking away their choice of representation at a critical time in the case. So they've gotten a remand, and now they are being told frequently by attorneys, I can't continue to represent you below. And so, because that's the incentive that Carpenter has created. We are putting stress on that veteran at, again, a critical time in the case where they need to gather evidence and make martial arguments to get it in front of the board so they can get the best decision they can quickly. We're putting stress on the veteran to then decide, am I going to find another attorney, go it alone, or use a VSO? So we're, we're really implicating that choice of representation and creating stress during a A DIFFICULT TIME, I THINK, OR A CRITICAL JUNCTURE IN THE CASE. SECONDLY, um, WE JUST ALSO ARGUE THAT CONTINUITY OF REPRESENTATION PROBABLY RESULTS IN SPEEDIER AND BETTER RESULTS. Um, WHENEVER I GET INVOLVED IN A CASE ON REMAND, I HAVE TO GATHER INFORMATION AND I HAVE TO GO THROUGH IT AND marshal ARGUMENTS AND TRY TO CREATE ARGUMENTS AND NEW EVIDENCE. Um, THAT TAKES TIME. I SOMETIMES HAVE TO ASK THE BOARD FOR EXTENSIONS IN ORDER TO DO THAT. So, again, the result of Carpenter is to build in extensions into the system. and We think that um, that's negative. We'd also just point out, I think, according to the VA's numbers um, in 2016, approximately 15% of cases on remand from this court are decided positively through a grant by the board. The rest of those, I I imagine a, a trickle of them come back up to the court. But most of them are being sent back down to the regional office um, for more duty to assist and more development. Um, so, as a practical matter, I think the same work isn't there because we're we're chasing that case to develop it anew, um, and nothing, or in a very small sliver of cases, is anything actually happening at the board. Furthermore, um, we think that this Carpenter one or the Carpenter decision really drives the wedge between veterans and attorneys. If um, trust and candor are important to that relationship, Carpenter really inserts the court and the VA into that relationship, again at a critical juncture, enforces the um, attorney or incentivizes the attorney to no longer work the case. Uh, we think that has negative implications. Finally, I think if you look at the whole legislative arc of um, VA law, beginning in 1988 with the formation of this court, WHICH THEN ALLOWED A REAL PLACE FOR ATTORNEYS TO BECOME INVOLVED AND COLLECT AGE FEES. AND THEN AGAIN IN 2006 WHERE WE WERE ALLOWED TO GET INVOLVED um, WHEN THE NOTICE OF DISAGREEMENT WAS FILED. AND NOW 2017 WHERE WE'RE GOING TO BE ABLE TO GET INVOLVED BEFORE THE ACTUAL NOTICE OF DISAGREEMENT IS FILED. THE OVERALL ARC IS TO ALLOW US TO BE INVOLVED AT AN EARLIER STAGE SO THAT WE CAN HELP VETERANS AT AN EARLIER STAGE. Um, SO WE THINK. Council, Carp- uh,
6: oh, SORRY TO INTERRUPT you. I JUST WANTED TO ASK, YOU KNOW, THE, the, the CARPENTER CASE Invoke somewhat broadly the Gardner presumption and, it, you know, it does so for that particular defendant or excuse me, for that uh, particular um, for, for appellant. Your argument is more of a kind of utilitarian calculus about the aggregate effect on veterans in general. And I wanted to ask if you, I mean, are you aware of any case where the court invoked the Gardner presumption in a more aggregate effect of how will this affect veterans generally or is it always sort of that case, this, this particular? Um, veteran in this case. Because, I mean, here I see, in a sense, I mean, the arguments sort of bifurcate where, sure, I mean, for that particular veteran, they get a check in their – they get, you know, an offset money that they wouldn't otherwise get. And you're saying that plays against the interests of all veterans going forward in the future who won't have as many options for representation.
3: Can you speak to that a bit? I think Gardner is – I've only seen it. To my memory, applied to sort of the individual veteran. Uh, I mean, I have to concede that I can't think of a case off the top of my head where we're thinking sort of system wide. But I don't think that um, that changes the ultimate argument, which is, a we've had this change, we've had this amendment to say by the agency action by the agency, and so then y'all have to decide is there an ambiguity? Again, we're arguing there isn't that. There isn't. There's no purple work to use that language. But to the extent you do want to go there, um, we really want to highlight the problems with Carpenter and how it incentivizes attorneys to take actions that maybe aren't in the benefit overall for veterans. Um, I tried to answer your question. I don't. You. I don't know if I did. Um, we pointed out um, at the very last section, sort of an alternative. The last section in our brief. Um, If you look at the Carpenter case, they really seem to focus on the fact that there was one fee agreement that agreed agreed to do work um, for the veteran sort of at all stages, agency, board, and the court. Um, They drew something from that. I think they argued there that because the claim, the the attorney was trying to help the veteran for the claim overall in front of everyone, Um, they used that to sort of... um, I THINK DEFINE SAME WORK OR TO INFLUENCE THEIR THOUGHTS ON SAME WORK. Um, WE price AN ALTERNATIVE BEFORE THE COURT, AND THAT'S TO SAY JUST ALLOW US TO HAVE A LIMITED REPRESENTATION AGREEMENT INITIALLY JUST BEFORE THIS COURT ALLOWING FOR EACH OF FEES. AND THEN IF THERE IS A REMAND GRANTED, ALLOW THERE TO BE A SECOND FEE AGREEMENT. And WE THINK THERE ARE FOUR GOOD REASONS FOR THAT, OR FOUR REALLY COMPELLING REASONS. FIRST, IT DOESN'T IMPACT THE VETERANS' LIBERTY TO CONTRACT. Um, WE THINK THERE'S VALUE IN IT. In, in, allowing contracts to exist, and I think most of us do. In Carpenter impairs on that.
6: And those, uh, like a post-reban contract is subject to the reasonableness analysis. right?
3: This Court could definitely, um, I think it's under Section 7263. Um, they can certainly view… are
6: under 5904, is there a, Sort of a separate reasonableness analysis that would be outside of the EJA?
3: They, they, they talk about the 20% is, mm-hmm. is going to be presumed. Sure. Um, but second, we also know that um, the veteran then after remand knows the basis of remand. They can then judge with that in mind whether I want to potentially give up my 20% or not, or um, if perhaps it's a reduction case where the, the court has said you shouldn't have reduced I don't need an attorney to chase that and prod the VA on that case. I'm just going to accept what the VA does in light of that remit. So we're empowering the the veteran there. Third, it also sort of allows the veteran to have actually worked with the attorney for some amount of time and to make a sort of decision, did I like working with him? Did he keep me informed? Um, Do I want to use him or do I maybe want to use someone else? Um, And fourth, I think it has the benefit of also just being a bright line test that can be easily administered. The use of two fee agreements. Um, if there are any more questions, um, I'm welcome to answer or welcome to try or attempt to answer them. But otherwise, we thank you for the opportunity to speak before you.
0: Mr. Greisdell, when you're ready.
2: please the court. The Secretary is the named party in this case, but has no direct financial interest in the outcome. He pays the same amount regardless of the Carpenter rule. Instead, the Secretary is here today as a de facto trustee and advocate for our nation's veterans whose benefits would be reduced if this long-standing offset rule were not maintained. This court has recognized in Carpenter that protecting the interests of the veteran is paramount, and the court has repeatedly affirmed the statutory history governing payment of attorney's fees reflects congressional intent to protect the benefits that veterans have earned from being diminished by excessive legal fees. The offset rule was derived from the history and purpose of the EJA, which is to remove financial deterrence to individuals defending themselves against unjustified government action. The purpose was not to pay enhanced fees. Egypt belongs to the veteran and not the attorney. The crux of this case really centers on how one interprets say work. And that phrase it, in its plain language is ambiguous. Um, it's not defined um, and uh, appellant has suggested that it means work in the same court for exactly the same work, that it must be identical. But that is not defined in the federal court's administration act by this court, by the Aegis statute, by 5904. So same work is ambiguous and can be interpreted as this court did in Carpenters, meaning in the same claim. IT COULD BE um, INTERPRETED AS RELATING TO THE SAME ACTIVITIES OR THE SAME GOAL, AND THERE IS A LEGITIMATE QUESTION ABOUT HOW BROADLY OR HOW NARROWLY uh, SAME WORK IS INTERPRETED. Um, IT DOESN'T NECESSARILY OR it, IT DOES NOT HAVE TO BE DEFINED AS SAME LINE BY LINE ITEM, COMPLETING THIS FORM, FILING THIS DOCUMENT. The court in Carpenter said that same work involved all work in the same claim. And the statutory um, uh, landscape really has not changed since the time of that Carpenter decision. Um, 5904 C1, both before the 2006 changes and after. Both contain the language in connection with a claim before the department. That language is in 5904 C-1 both before and after the amendments, and it did not change. So to the extent that Apollo argues that it, it changed the, the landscape and, and clarified something that had previously been ambiguous, that language was in the uh, statute before, and it was there when this court issued the decision in Carpenter, and it it really has not changed. In construing legislation, we must presume that Congress was aware of the law, was aware of the Carpenter rule and the age of offset, and did nothing to um, change that. Uh, What the changes to the the statute did were to allow attorneys to um, collect fees for participation in the process earlier than they previously had. But um, attorneys could collect fees for administrative work prior to um, the 2006 changes. For example, if a final board decision had been issued, at that point, an attorney could come in and charge a fee. An attorney could have jumped in at that point, filed a motion for reconsideration of the board decision, received. Uh, relief and build for attorney work at, at that time. So really, the the um, nature of that statute did not change in the way that appellant has um, uh, suggested. What the the public context of those changes really came uh, in light of the perception that veterans were being treated uh, unequally or inequitably because they were not allowed to have attorneys um, represent them early and throughout the administrative process. And uh, in, in every other agency or civil proceeding, um, individuals were allowed that type of representation. So it was in order to level the playing field. If you look at the legislative history of those 5904 changes in 2006, they were not geared towards um, Enhancing fees or providing, um, you know, additional um, changes to to the fee structure, but they wanted to give the veterans an opportunity or a choice to have representation. But it's very clear that that Congress wanted to um, not to suggest that an attorney was necessary or required. They wanted to balance. The non-adversarial, veteran-friendly nature of the VA administrative system, against a right of the veteran to choose a representation if he or she wanted to. There was no suggestion that attorneys were necessary, and really, Congress um, went to lengths to, in that legislative history, to explain that they were not undoing the non-adversarial, veteran-friendly nature of. Um, the VA system. So, when we look at the um, Carpenter decision itself, I would just note that um, you know the concurrence by Judge Steinberg said that um, fees uh, that the, the rule that was being promulgated. Um, he disagreed with because he didn't think fees should be that the offsets should be automatic, but that generally there should be an offset. So even in that portion of the decision, there was agreement that this type of offset that the Carpenter rule um, set up was was appropriate.
0: Do you um, or can you please respond to Mr. Carpenter's argument that this court in Carpenter? Um, premised its decision on the idea that the court could award fees under 5904 and it could award EJA fees under Title 28 and that that is integral to its decision?
2: I I don't think that's integral to its decision because I don't think that the court was awarding fees under 5904. that um, you know the application of that is really the same under the old version that was an issue when the carpenter decision was issued or the amended version um, you know after 2006 what the court was looking at was the effect on the veteran and you know there's a point that's come up a lot about uh, you know sort of the aggregate effects on on um, veterans and the or the aggravate effect on attorneys and their ability to have um, financially sustainable practices and take claims that are um, financially feasible, but really the issue here, it has to you have to look at the effect on the veteran. And dollar for dollar, every um, at the the dollars that are withheld are. Uh, if, if the offset rule is not maintained, those dollars come directly out of the veterans' pockets and the attorney keeps those fees. So the offset rule is to uh, allow veterans to keep more of the benefits that they've earned through their service and sacrifice to our country. Well, if I may,
4: sorry, no, please. Uh, if I may, <clears throat> I'm unburdened by my uh, 45 years of private practice experience we were required to keep pretty detailed time charges to the quarter hour. I have 45 years of quarter hour entries, whether we're on a contingent fee or not. So I prefer to look at this, or I'm asking you as the representative of the government to look at this as a continuum. It's neither red nor blue nor purple, but is, if there were an affidavit of services, Provided by the lawyer who said, from day one until I'm making my application for EJA fees, here's what I did. Is there such yes. a document in this case? For example, there is not, Your Honor. Well, if there, w- so if there were, would the government take the position? In other words. Here's day one. I'm explaining everything I've done until the end when I'm entitled to my 20 percent and, as being argued here, an additional EJA fee award. If you could look at that and see there was no duplication of effort. It was representation, I did this, I did this. It was reasonable. The amount charged was reasonable. What well, would the government position be there?
2: That it's still prohibited under the en banc decision of this court in Carpenter. Well, all
4: right, but a, apart from that, uh, just on the merits of it, assuming that we, well, there, there's a don't assume there's any sentiment to overturn Carpenter, or that as Shulen pointed out, perhaps we can't as a panel do that. Might require en banc consideration, but just as a practical, hypothetical situation, what would the government position be? Well, The lawyer has demonstrated that they did the work. The lawyer is entitled to be compensated for the work. You know, there's a long history here. I think the each statute is almost simultaneous with the creation of our court, wasn't it? A Reagan era had been right in the same couple of years. We had 200 years of congressional intent to keep lawyers away from veterans on purpose. So this was a change in sentiment. So now it would appear, with the creation of the court, EJA, all about the same time, uh, you want to encourage good representation of uh, veterans. So why is it not right that the government have an obligation to make a determination that there's a duplication, actual duplication of work before denying the fee to the lawyer? Well, if the court- Regardless of what, excuse me, regardless of whether or not it's the 20% plus the EJA fee application or just the 20% or just an EJA fee application.
2: Well, if the court overturned the carpenter rule and that, and the court ordered the better, Uh, The department to undertake those types of analyses in every case, then uh, we certainly would. But Um, no, no, I don't. Sorry
4: to interrupt you, and perhaps I'm not making myself clear. I don't think it's necessary for us to touch the carpenter rule to do what I'm suggesting. The government has an obligation to look at the entire work product of the lawyer and say there's no duplication of effort here. And if, if, if the government says, finds that, then the lawyer should be paid.
2: But that would um, essentially do away with contingency fee representation, I, I believe, because if the if, if the representative is required to submit itemized billing statements, and then there's a line by line comparison between agency work and um, court work, then there, there's there's no purpose or role for the contingency fee in, in that process. I believe. Well, let me ask
4: you this: What's your experience? Do lawyers who work on a, the 20% uh, contingency fee keep uh, detailed time records, or do they not? Um, you.
2: That
4: would best be and Maybe I'll a, ask the lawyers uh,
2: but Yeah, but I, I have not seen those types of items So you like think sandwich. it would be
4: an additional burden on the one hand and on the other hand probably not legally necessary for the government to make that inquiry the inquiry I'm suggesting what was the well, total amount of work done and is it compensable under a combination of the 20% fee arrangement and the EGIF fee application
2: I, I'm not sure how that would Work in practice, and it, it frankly sounds a bit unworkable. And if you look at Judge Kramer's dissent in the Carpenter decision, he seems to um, highlight the complexity and litigiousness of how of attorney fee litigation. So I would suggest, if a, the court were to move um, the Department in it in that type of way, that it would create a huge amount of litigation over decisions about which tasks are reasonable and which are not, and those would have initial decisions by the agency appealed to the board. Those would clog the board's docket, uh, preventing uh, veterans waiting there from getting timely decisions, slow down the process. Those would also percolate up to this court and clog this court's docket. Essentially, you would have a separate after the, you know, uh, a separate fee litigation process in almost every case, because I couldn't imagine that those uh, determinations by the department in the first instance, if they were made, would go unchallenged. Well, Um, you may. The
4: department makes challenges to fee applications all the time.
2: But that's right. And do do we want to create a complete, separate um, body of litigation along those lines at the agency and the board and have those also come up to the court. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the benefit of the Carpenter Rule is that it is a bright-line rule that's easy to administer and it nearest to the uh, benefit of veterans. Um, you know, Congress made uh, veterans the primary beneficiaries of EJA. And, you know, I, I, I want to say that you know, the concerns that the Amiki especially raise about sort of this aggregate effect on veterans, th- those are not um, inconsequential concerns. I mean, th- those are legitimate concerns. But those concerns cannot outweigh the interest of veterans in receiving and keeping the benefits that they've been earned. The whole purpose of veterans' benefits is to benefit veterans, not their lawyers. The whole purpose of EJA is to allow uh, veterans and claimants to um, pursue their claim, keep their claim alive. But for EJA, many of these cases would not be able to come to the court in order to be potentially remanded or back to the agency. All of these statutes are intended to benefit the veterans and the uh, Claimants in these cases if I not the attorney
0: interject speaking of statutes the FCAA talks about that you can have fees under 5904 you can have fees under EJA you just can't have them from the same work can you give me an example of something that wouldn't be the same work or does anything pertaining to any claim same claim has been applied By the department to be the same work. So, you know, they lose the case, they come back, file new and material evidence, would that be the same work?
2: Um, I I believe new and material evidence is sort of a different. um, So it would be a new claim then? EQ, uh, those types of situations. Uh But same work can be interpreted broadly, or it could be interpreted narrowly.
0: My concern is how it's been applied basically means that you can't be paid both claims ever. So it sort of creates um, surplusage language under the FCIA. And I'm trying to figure out, is the way that it's been applied and been or interpreted by this court or by the department at odds with the idea that there is supposed to be some opportunity for dual payment but in reality, now there is no dual payment.
2: I I don't think that's I don't think that's the case, Your Honor, because I mean it, it really sort of depends on that same work language. And the the way it has been interpreted is consistent with the requirement that any type of interpretive doubt be resolved in the veteran's favor. Um, That's what the court did in Carpenter. And it allows veterans to keep more of their benefits that they've earned through their service and their sacrifice. And that's the purpose of veterans benefit laws, is to provide the money to veterans. And so interpreting that statute in a way that allows (laughs) veterans to do that, you know, it's fully, fully consistent in its application and interpretation. and um, you know it's the congressional intent um, to ensure that the benefits veterans have earned are not diminished through excessive um, legal fees. Um,
0: now, I know that the department has, over the last several years, um, picked up the federal circuit's frequent interpretation that. Um, we defer to the agency interpretation as opposed to Gardner, applying Gardner. We do Chevron, not Gardner. Um, is this the Secretary's interpretation or, as you said earlier, you don't have a horse in this race?
2: What Well, we do have a horse in this race, so to speak, and it's to protect the interest of veterans. I mean, that is the fundamental purpose of the Department. Um, and so our position is strongly in favor of maintaining the Carpenter Rule because it does allow veterans to retain a larger portion of the benefits that were intended for them, um, as was the purpose of the EJA. So uh, to that, we, the department pays the same amount was my initial point. Who gets to keep that money is really the question, whether it's the veterans to whom it was intended to get to keep it or the attorneys. Um, who are attempting to you know, to represent them, and the, um, uh, the the issue you know here has been presented, and the uh, authorities relied on by opponents sort of try to draw analog- analogies to the Social Security context. But I'd like to point out that that is a different system, and um, not and not just in the way the but there's potentially overlapping um, uh, payments. Under 4, uh, 42, uh, uh, Title 42, Section 406A, for work before the Social Security Agency, there is a hard cap on that of $6,000. So whatever fees, uh, or 20, uh, 25%, the lesser of 25% or $6,000. So work before the agency is capped, at $6,000. So, you know, there's no such cap against collecting um, for work before the agency in the VA system. And, in fact, in this case, I think Mr. Raven's 20 percent was something like $17,300. You know, that far exceeds that $6,000 cap in Social Security. So there are differences in the way the system is set up. Attorneys are compensated far more generously in the veterans' law system by the way Uh, title 38 is written um, as opposed to the way title 42 sets up that system and that is to incentivize payment for uh, representation Um, also uh, in most cases there's an aggregate cap in the Social Security context uh, for fees awarded under 46A and 46B that they can't exceed 25% of the past two benefits. So, you know, there are very significant differences in the way these systems are structured. And appellant would like to draw a very nice, clean parallel and say that the Social Security cases really should be persuasive here. But there are lots of differences in those systems uh, purposefully that sort of mitigate the direct correlation that appellant is trying to draw. Um, you know, also in the VA system, the representation before the um, agency, before the department, the veterans, it's a veteran friendly, non adversarial system. So there's a duty to assist, um, there's benefit of the doubt. None of those things, uh, n- those are not features of the social security system at all. So just to distinguish between. Social Security and Veterans Law, you know, it explains some of the way, the reasons why the fee structures are different, because the systems are different. They're different statutory schemes purposely designed for to achieve different results. Uh, there's a special solicitude for veterans, and the way Veterans Law is written is much more generous than it is to claimants in the Social Security system. And the absence of any kind of cap on fees before the agency you know twenty percent or so um, that that also incentivizes and compensates for representation so
4: is it your is it the government's position that a lawyer who undertakes to represent a veteran should understand when he undertakes that representation that it's going to be based on or whatever the contractual agreement, notwithstanding any subsequent award under the statute.
2: I I believe that's the nature of contingency, Your Honor, yes. If I understand your question. Yeah, I think you do.
4: Okay. And and you've answered
2: it. I understand. And I, I would like to. Sort of take a take a moment to address an issue that um, w- was raised in in appellant's argument. <coughs> so the um, five thousand seven hundred eighty-seven dollars um, that was withheld um, from from Mr. Raven's fee, that VA processed that portion of the um, claim improperly. VA doesn't have the authority to withhold that money. That should have been paid to Mr. Raven, and it is his obligation under the Carpenter Rule to then remit that to his client. I believe there was an overzealous attempt to protect the veteran and effectuate that offset in this particular case, but the the VA doesn't have the um, authority to well, the withhold it. where's the money? The money now, I believe it is... I'm not sure if it's been not clear if it has been paid to Mr. Raven already, or if VA is waiting to figure out. to Isn't that it important be for us to know? Paid. Well,
4: we, we we have to we have to interpret the law, we have to apply it, and we have to fashion a remedy. So it's a practical consideration.
2: I, I understand, and I, I would say that if there were some type of overpayment to Mr. Easterling, that there are. Procedures in place for waiver of that overpayment, but that's just not before this court. That's a separate issue that um, you know would need to be filed and, and um, addressed below. But uh, no, I, I don't believe Mr. Easterling would be required to repay that out of pocket. Well, what
4: about the argument of the uh, appellant's lawyer that if the government made a mistake, it's got to pay twice?
2: Well, that's You've Got to
4: pay over to Mr. Easterling and pay Mr. Ray.
2: Right. And that's part of the procedure of determining that waiver review. Well, we don't want to
4: encourage litigation over fees yeah. or over matters that should have been dealt with in a proper administrative right, way. Right. And I'm,
2: I'm raising this issue here, you know, informing the court in, in full disclosure that there was an error in the way that was processed. It not, should not have been withheld out of the fee should have been given to Mr. Raven, but under the Carpenter Rule, it was his obligation to then remit that to, to the veteran. And so really the board addressed that point a bit in its decision, and there's not any prejudice here because all the money is going to get to the right place. But there was a procedural anomaly, well-intentioned, but uh, doesn't affect the, the outcome here and doesn't really require the, the court to... Um, Address that um, outright because it can be, and will be corrected um, if it hasn't already. Um, so um, the um, uh, uh, another point that I wanted to raise um, with regard to the, the um, Amiki's assertion that there's um, that that about economic viability for, for attorneys, and it really discourages attorney representation in this sort of aggregate type of way. I would just note that the Secretary earlier this year published notice in the Federal Register. It's 82 Federal Register 26751. It was in June 9th of, of this year. But the Secretary there noted that the VA's accreditation program is at an all-time high. And since the 2008 regulations um, effectuating these 2006 changes to the attorney fee structure, VA has accredited 17,500 attorneys in that time. VA is accrediting approximately 2,000 new attorneys every year and since that time have also accredited approximately 340 some odd claims agents. to the extent that the Pelin and Amiki are arguing that there's this chilling effect on representation, the numbers do not bear that out. VA is accrediting almost two thousand new attorneys a year. There's a lot of interest in practicing this area of law to serve veterans and um, you know the the arguments otherwise just are, are not really borne out. And again, those concerns about financial Financial viability of a legal practice; Th- those are legitimate concerns, but they have to be secondary to the interests and concerns of the veterans and keeping the benefits that were intended for them.
0: Once someone is accredited, they have certain continuing education requirements or something, and and need to, in order to remain accredited. Do you have any um, information about how many people are dropping off the rolls every year?
2: Um, I do not, your honor. I, I don't know because uh, I think in a lot of cases they're accredited but perhaps not as active or you know I mean they I, I'm not sure they have an obligation to actively disenroll so I don't have that that particular number but um, you know 17,500 new attorney accreditations and hundreds of new a- claims agent accreditations since these changes to to the law so really the chilling effect that is, um uh, presented in, in the um, in the arguments really you know it's, it's not really borne out and that's not a litigating position or anything like that that's something that's factual and has been published in the Federal Register can be verified so um, I would like to just uh, reiterate again that um, The the court has recognized over and over that protecting veterans' benefits is um, paramount and that the purpose and history of EJA is to ensure that uh, veterans can pursue their claims but not to pay enhanced fees. I would also emphasize that the carpenter rule um, is a bright line rule that's easy to administer and adheres to the benefit of the veterans. and therefore, the Secretary would ask the Court to reject the Appellant's argument or invitation to reverse its settled precedent and to affirm the Board's decision.
0: Thank you. Mr. Carpenter, we'll hear your rebuttal.
1: Yeah, I'd like to go back to Section 506 of the Federal Courts Administration Act of 1992 and talk about the specific language The language, in fact, that is uh, quoted by the board in its decision at page uh, 4 of the record. The quoted section says uh, that the uh, FCAA requires uh, that an attorney who receives fees for the same work under both Section 504 of Title 38, United States Code, and Section 2412D of Title 28, uh, United States Code is to refund the claim at the amount of the smaller fee. Now, the government has stood before you and said that there is no difference now because of this statutory change. But we know because of this statutory change that there is no circumstance under which that there will be work performed under Section 5904, which is the same work that is performed before this court. They are mutually exclusive. 5904 work is done for services performed before the agency. Work under the EGIS statute is reimbursed for work performed before this court. The uh, Federal Circuit has not interpreted the phrase same work, but what the Federal Circuit has interpreted in the Fritz case is that the work performed under the Equal Access to Justice Act is in a civil action. A civil action is a court proceeding. It is not an administrative proceeding under 5904. Well,
4: if I may, actually, isn't that just an extension of the logic behind EJA? Doesn't it presume that the government's position was not reasonably sustainable in the first place? A- at it the
1: agency, the agency level, the civil action that required correction of that right it should be compensated separately
4: under EJA. Absolutely. So by definition, your argument is all EJA work cannot be a duplication of the work done before the agents.
1: That is absolutely correct, Your Honor. And that's what you'd like us to hold. A- and to hold as a result of that, that the decision in Carpenter is no longer viable as a matter of law. And would you like us to, do you think we have the authority to hold that way as a panel? Yes, I do. Because there was a change in law. We are not asking you to review Carpenter to determine whether it was correctly decided. It was decided based upon the involved court's interpretation of the law and their decision to apply Gardner to deal with the ambiguity about what same work was before 5904. All right. Now, let's assume we agree
4: with you in terms of your analysis. What are we to do here in this
1: particular case? I think you've already answered it
4: once, but first, First, you to, reiterate hold, it,
1: first to hold that the rule in Carpenter for each offset, for mandatory each offset, is no longer viable. Right. And that attorneys performing work for this court will no longer be required under the Carpenter Rule to offset for Egypt because there was a change in law. Right. Second, to order the VA to do what apparently for the first time the government discloses that oral argument, that they intend to return this money to Mr. Laban. That needs to be ordered by this court, not just take the word of the government that they're going to get around to doing it. They had no basis and they conceded They had no basis for doing what they did. So Mr. Easterling is no worse
4: off as a result of that holding. In other words, he's never gotten the money that he's going to have to pay to Mr. Raven, and Mr. Raven gets the money that he earned under EJA, which is a separate category of work, than the
1: fees he earned representing Easterling before the agency. Yes, but just to be clear, Your Honor, he has already been paid... For the work that he performed before this court under each the government then went and took that amount of money and offset it against the twenty percent of the contracted amount under fifty nine hundred four d one. So the twenty one thousand or twenty two thousand dollars was the total amount of his fee, and they subtracted five thousand dollars from that amount. Well, let's go
4: back to my uh, hypothetical based upon my own background. Forty-five years of private practice. I had contingent fee cases and mostly hourly. But I kept copious time records. Is that not typical
1: of veterans' practice? I really cannot speak for anyone else. Well, you're an experienced lawyer. You've been here. What's your practice? Uh, Well, our practice is to keep records of everything we do for the client. Well, let me let
4: me separate it. Assuming that
1: the the
4: customary method in a contingent fee cases. I'm getting my percentage, so I don't have to keep copious yes. uh, time records. But when it comes to EJA, I'm expected to make an affidavit of services with uh, detailed time records. And that by itself suggests a difference in approach.
1: Yes.
4: Do you believe that if we were to rule the way you ask us to rule, this would be a disincentive to representation uh, by the bar of veterans? Making no.
1: this distinction between an, an EJA application no, be- and because the work before the agency the requirements under uh, Title Twenty Eight for an EJA application are clear. You must itemize the time. You must demonstrate to the court the time that you put in, and that the amount of time is commensurate with the services that were provided. Let me well, ask you one other question. Uh,
4: in my, uh, there's another stat- important f- fee shifting statute that long predates this, and that's under Section 1983 of Title 42, and I've forgotten whether it's Section 1986 or 1988, is the fee-shifting part of that civil rights 1871 statute. How does that work? uh, Do you have any idea as to how that works
1: in the fee application? I I have no experience with that. I have experience with Social Security, as I indicated. Yeah, well, we heard the government
4: explain this differential. And here's another fee shifting statute, long, longest standing of all of the statutes,
1: uh, Act of Congress. I, I would assume, Your Honor, that that if the civil rights action were brought against the government, that there it's would always be by definition y- y- state action. It's got to right.
4: be against individuals
1: acting under color of law. Under color of right. law. Right. But but the, the that would generate the ability to do it for uh, 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 Egypt, but I believe Egypt is limited to federal action, not to state action. Right. Uh, and if that is the case, then there wouldn't be an office. I'm just
4: looking for an analogy, yeah. if you have any experience that. Well, I think the best area.
1: analogy, quite frankly, is to Social Security, because Social Security has the circumstances in which there is a specific statute that authorizes the district court judge to award fees under title forty two there is a separate statute under title twenty eight for the same work the two fifth circuit cases that we have presented explain how precisely what we talked about earlier cannot occur because the work performed before the agency is not the same work as performed before the court by definition, by definition. Unless there are further questions from other members of the panel, I'm prepared to submit the matter. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This case will be submitted for decision. The court is now adjourned. We will come down and greet you. All right.